Well, you may be seated, I assume. Um, so good to be uh, back together. Sorry about the, the chaos uh, through that. Let me just encourage you again, um, if you haven't said hi in the comments, please do that. And uh, I'm going to ask Marissa if she could post that uh, Connect card link, because I wasn't smart enough to figure that out. Uh, and uh, if you have prayer requests um, that, uh, that maybe are a little more personal and you'd like to share that with the elders, um, fill out that Connect card, fill out the prayer request section, and that, uh, um, that will be prayed for throughout the week. Um, we want to continue to shepherd in, in that way and care for you. Uh, as well, if you've, if you've not been connected to our church, if this is a new thing, maybe you're just kind of checking it out, um, we would love to, uh, to connect with you. And so if you fill out that uh, Connect card and put your information in there, um, let us know who you are. And uh, if you're interested, we can put you on our, uh, our newsletter and you can kind of know what, what's happening and be informed as things start to move forward again as we start to gather and, uh, and, and uh, get back to, to church as usual. Um, but in this strange meantime, uh, it doesn't seem horribly difficult uh, to help us see the relevance of a passage that addresses anxiety. Uh, the world is in upheaval over this virus. People have lost jobs. We're shut up in our homes. The kids are out of school. Um, there are all kinds of plans that we had that are just turned on their heads, thrown up in the air, no idea what's going on. And, and that's just on top of all of the regular things, right? On top of the relational tension, the, the marriages under stress, the wayward children, the trials of disease and sickness and cancer, anxiety, worry, fear. Um, They're like vicious wolves in pursuit of our soul, always nipping at our heels, always close behind us. And the path that we run down is full of obstacles, full of things that would trip us up and slow us down and give opportunity for anxiety to overtake us, to pounce on us. Uh, And it is bloodthirsty. Uh, It is relentless and vicious. Um, No respecter of persons, it comes after the young and the old, kings and peasants alike. Every one of us knows um, that feeling of helpless 3 a.m. toiling. We've been there. Thinking through what was said, what should have been said? What are, the, what are the possible outcomes? And is there any way I can change that? And, and the more we think about it and fret about it, the more helpless we feel, the more anxious we become. And, and anxiety is an interesting topic. Let me be clear, not all anxiety across the board is sin, right? Now, certainly there is a healthy level of care and concern, a godly concern that we ought to feel about different situations. It would be wrong if we didn't feel that way. There's also anxiety um, that comes because of physiological problems. It's not a heart issue. It's a, it's a body issue. It's about hormones and, and chemicals, and, and certainly that's not a sinful anxiety. But there's also a kind of anxiety that though it would appear as if it has attacked us and, and we feel like we are helpless, innocent victims of it, the reality is it stems out of a heart that is subtly, even unknowingly, doubting God. As the saying goes, I have seen the enemy and it is us. A heart that is not firmly anchored in the greatness and the goodness of God is what produces anxiety. It's it's a heart that's leaning upon self to provide what what ultimately only God can give. And, And so that kind of anxiety, the kind that most typically keeps us awake at night, that that runs in the back of your mind, draining your battery like a computer virus, running constantly, that that leaves you with this sense of helpless hopelessness, it is sinful. At very least, it's the product of a heart that's not honoring God as it should be. And I have great sympathy. I know that horrible experience intimately. I have been there often in my own anxiety. 
But we have to recognize that all too often it does in fact stem out of our own sin from a diminished view of who God is and an exaggerated view of what we are capable of and responsible for. And like any sin, the solution to the problem, the problem of sinful anxiety, is none other than repentance and faith. And that is what Paul is laying out for the church in Philippi uh, as he writes uh, this so familiar passage, a passage that many of you, I'm sure, have memorized and for good reason. Uh, Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Would you turn there with me? That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible on you, now's your chance. Go and grab one. Um, Send one of the ushers your kids to go and get one for you. Um, It's a great opportunity for them to learn service. And and, uh, uh, if you really don't have a Bible, if you don't have one around your house that you can read easily, um, you know what? Send us a direct message and we'll get you one. One way or another, um, we will get a copy of God's Word to you. We want you to have it open on your lap. Um, I have nothing to say. The only authority, the only thing of value I have is this right here, and, uh, and you have it too. And, and so we want to come together to sit under God's word to see what it has for us. Um, this section here that we're looking at this morning, um, Philippians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 4 and go down to verse 7. Um, this section uh, as a whole I think runs down to verse 9. Um, we're not going to get all the way down there this morning. Um, Verse, the, the, the verses beyond that um, really are kind of just a wrap-up. This is, in some ways, his conclusion. And so he'll go on to, to thank them for uh, their generous gift, and there's some beautiful things there to learn about contentment and, and generosity, and we'll get to that in the weeks to come. But these verses um, really are uh, wrapping up this section of his kind of direct instructions for them, ending the body of the letter. And so let's just stop and consider what he's covered so far, what's brought him to this place. Um, He's called them to this radical Christ-centered life, seeking Christ above all else, to unity in the church, to to a selfless humility and the imitation of Christ. He went on to warn them uh, about these false teachers who would be pushing them toward a deadly legalism and and others who would abandon Christ, running after the things of this world. He pointed out division, even in their own local church, and he charged them to to be reconciled in Christ, to live at peace with one another. And now kind of wrapping that all up, closing this section, he ends saying, don't be anxious. Don't fret. Don't worry about these things or or anything else. Do not be anxious about anything. Let me read these words for us. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, help us. We are an anxious people. We are plagued and harassed by uncertainty and worry and fear. It weighs us down, and it belies within us a doubting of who you are, an uncertainty about your might and your goodness. Help us this morning, Father, to see um, through anxiety, to come to this place of peace. Lord, we need it. You are the God of peace, and we seek you. So, Lord, help us to know our hearts this morning. Help us to see clearly our own selves. But, Lord, give us a bigger vision of who you are, that we might see you and know you 
and rejoice in the Lord always. We pray in Jesus' name. Now, as I said, I think this is a unit here down to the end of verse 9. We're just going to do 4 to 7 today. We'll leave 8 and 9 for next week. Um, But this is Paul's prescription for peace. Um, This is his attack against anxiety, and, and we so need this. We so need this in a world that is so filled with uncertainty, so many opportunities for us to be anxious. And Paul's first words should not surprise us at this point. Um, we've, we've been through Philippians enough. He says again, rejoice in the Lord. Point one, the first step in, in overcoming anxiety is refocus with praise. Refocus with, with praise. How do you fight anxiety? You you fight it with joy. Let's remember Paul's situation here. His friends are suffering. Back in 129, he said they were experiencing the same kinds of suffering and persecution that he was. The church that he planted, that he loves, are being assaulted by by false teachers from without and and stressed by division from within. He's writing this letter from prison, most likely on his way to his death. And yet he says, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always. How do you do that? I mean, let's just be honest, that feels like a stick in the eye when I'm anxious, doesn't it? (laughs) Rejoice. How do I rejoice when I've lost my job? How do I rejoice with the diagnosis of cancer? How do I rejoice when my beloved son or daughter is running their life off the rails? Where is joy? How dare you tell me rejoice? Isn't this just glib and shallow? Now, certainly we don't rejoice in those things. We are right to be grieved by the the fallout of sin and suffering in our lives and the lives of those around us. We're right to mourn those things. And yet at the same time, that grief, that concern should be kept from becoming a sinful anxiety by a deeper rejoicing, a rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in spite of the things around us because of a view of who Jesus is, who God is. It's bigger than our fears. The God who, who shines a light into the darkest shadows of our lives. A view of the glory of the Lord knowing and, and really believing who He is. That He's sovereign over every situation, that he really does have a plan in and through every trial, that he's not surprised, taken off guard in any way, and that he truly is unshakably, unquestionably good. Do you believe that? In all that he ordains and all that he allows in our lives, he is good and he does good. And so... It's easy to say, but under the pressure of of fear and pain and uncertainty, um, it is incredibly hard to truly believe, to to really internalize and hang on to and, and live out of. But this is what we're called to, rejoicing in the Lord in every situation. Flowing out of that, he then says, let your reasonableness... Be known to all. The word reasonableness is a tricky one. Um, the NASB uses a gentle spirit. NIV uses gentleness. King James, moderation. Christian standard uses graciousness. Um, different commentators that I looked at suggested generosity, goodwill, friendliness, magnanimity, charity, forbearance, big-heartedness. Um, it isn't a word that's easily summarized and pinned down by one English equivalent, but the general idea comes through. These people, facing trials and hardship, but rejoicing in the Lord, are living in a way that is not self-absorbed, 
It's not bitter and, and short-tempered and angry. They, they aren't consumed by anxiety and letting that then overflow in frustration to the people around them. They live with a gentleness, a graciousness, a serenity through even the most severe trials. A composure in their soul that is visible and notable to those looking on. And then he goes on to give this word of encouragement. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. He's saying that this hope that we have in the Lord, it's not in vain. It is not a fool's hope. Because the Lord is at hand. Now, some would take this to mean the Lord is close. The Lord is present. The Lord is with us in trials. And, and that is blessedly true. That is all through the Psalms. Um, that's not wrong by any means. And that is a great comfort. Um, but I think here, um, judging by the, the theme of eternity that runs through Philippians, and, and I'm thinking specifically of, of chapter 3, uh, verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pointing them forward. And then uh, chapter 4, verse 3 that we looked at just last week, he says, um, he, he points them back, to the, reminding them that their names are written in the book of life. He's, he's consistently pointing forward to eternity, and I think here again he's picking up on that theme. The Lord is at Hand. The second coming of Jesus is near. Now, I kind of wish we could camp out here for a half hour or so and just unpack this. Um, but like any good road trip, if you pull out at every roadside pull out, you'll never get to your destination. And, and there are just there are other books in the Bible that we would like to get to this lifetime. And, and so um, we can only spend so much time on each word. Um, let me say this. The Lord's coming is at hand. The second coming is near. And you say, well, you can say that today and it's hard to prove you wrong. We, we don't know what tomorrow brings. Um, but let's just be honest, Paul wrote this over 2,000 years ago. And he was clearly wrong then. And if he was wrong then, why do you think he might be right now? I don't think he was wrong then. I think the Lord's coming was at hand when Paul wrote this. I just don't think he means by it what we so often mean by it. I don't think he's caught up in speculating and, and reading the news and saying, oh, it's going to be this year or maybe next year. That's not the emphasis of what he's saying. Um, there's a beautiful picture that Jesus uses, Matthew 24, 33. He says, and so when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. That's the picture. He is like a king uh, with an invading army who is coming to, to establish his rightful rule over this world and he is at the gates. He is close. He is near. It's not far off. It's not as though he has some great distance that he has to cover that we know it'll be at least so long until he comes. There's some barriers to be overcome first. He is standing at the gate prepared to break in at exactly the right moment. It's the next thing on God's calendar. He's near. Will it be tomorrow or, or, or next year or a hundred years from now? I don't know. Neither do you but it's near. He is near. He is ready. And His coming will bring with it the end of all pain and sorrow. It will bring justice and judgment and vengeance against the enemies of God and the enemies of His children. It will bring full reward for those who have suffered Endured trial and hardship and need while rejoicing in the Lord and awaiting His return with graciousness and patience. And it will bring an eternal perspective as we have gone through trials and tribulation and suffering. And in that day, we'll be able to see and it will all make sense. Are you facing anxiety? Do you feel the stress of life just bearing down on you? Questions and, and unknown that leave you 
trembling? Are you prone to focus on your your fears and your trials and, and be overcome by the anxiety? You need to refocus with praise. Rejoice in the Lord. His coming is at hand. Don't let your trials loom so large in your perspective that that you lose sight of the Lord who's over it all. Rejoice in the Lord. Fill your eyes with the glory of who He is. Study the character of God. Get to know Him. His power, His might, His sovereignty, His goodness and love, and worship Him. This is the the fight against anxiety. It begins with worship. I love uh, the story of, uh, in in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 of Jehoshaphat. Um, Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, and uh, Judah was under attack. Three armies, three nations had gathered together. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and Mount Seir had had joined forces um, to destroy them. Talk about reason for anxiety. A massive army is coming. We're all going to die. And verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid. So what did he do? Well, then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. He called a prayer meeting, church. Let's get together. We're going to be destroyed. We don't know what the future holds. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. He didn't call for soldiers. He didn't stay up all night fretting. He gathered the country to pray. And then Jehoshaphat himself led in prayer. And look at verse 6. He's praising the Lord. And said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. He's refocusing in praise. He's remembering the greatness of God and God's sovereignty over all of this. And then verse 12 is this beautiful line. You may have heard me quote this before. It says, For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Do you ever feel like that? Powerless against a great horde. Powerless against the trials in your life. And he says, we do not know what to do. I'm just at a loss. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to solve this. But, But look at what Jehoshaphat says. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We're looking at you, Lord. We are focused on your glory and who you are. And then look at what they did. They went out to meet these three armies that had them thoroughly outnumbered, outgunned, this great horde that threatened to destroy them. And instead of sending out the chariots first or the the horsemen or maybe the swordsmen or the, the pikesmen, Jehoshaphat sends the choir, the worship team. Now, our worship leaders... I mean, he's not your, he works in construction. He's a little more of a man's man. But let's just be honest. If, if you're looking for warriors, like if we're looking for fighting men, I, I'm not going to the worship department. Not my first choice, right? Like that's not where we go to find strength. But he sends out the choir. And, and verse 21, they march out against these vicious armies And they're singing. And and it gives us their song. Here's what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. They're standing in front of an army that's going to defeat them, singing, praise the Lord. His love endures forever. And verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against them. The men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. That means they were wiped out. They were destroyed. What happened was God incited this conflict somehow and Ammon and Moab turned and attacked Mount Seir and they, all, they destroyed one another. And Judah was saved. But what did they do? They didn't fix it. It wasn't their strength. They prayed. They turned their eyes to the Lord. They declared His worship and they, and they magnified Him. They refocused their hearts in praise. 
Worship is a mighty weapon against anxiety. In fact, worship is a mighty weapon against all of our sin. Our sin that seeks to destroy us, this great horde that surrounds us. Rejoice in the Lord. Fight it with worship. And Paul gets it. He knows this is hard. He knows that our hearts are are dull and slow and and easily forgetful. And and that's why he says, uh, this is future tense. Again, I will say rejoice. I'm going to remind you again. I'm going to have to tell you next week and the week after that and the week after that, continue rejoicing in the Lord. That's the first and most significant step in the battle against anxiety. That's that's where we have to start. That's the first piece of this prescription for peace. Worship. Don't don't let your mind rule the day. Don't let your mind run the thoughts. Turn to the Lord. Open the Psalms and just read about His goodness and His his character. Put on some worship music. Declare the faithfulness of God. Maybe if you're going through a hard season that you know is going to be difficult, pick up a Bible study on the character of God. Focus on Him. Watch your anxiety dissipate. Refocus your heart with worship. And then the next, I think Paul goes on to say, um, replace it with prayer. Replace it with prayer. Let me read verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious about anything. That's a command, church. Plain and simple, do not be anxious about anything. Again, I think there's healthy concern that we ought to have. And there are anxiety disorders that are not a heart problem. They're a physical problem. But I would encourage you not to run too quickly to either of those, but rather to look carefully and suspiciously at your own heart Are you disobeying this command to not be anxious? And notice the distinction that he makes here. Notice the contrast that he lays out. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. Prayer is in many ways the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety is horizontal in its focus, right? It sees worldly problems, From a worldly perspective, it's fighting for a worldly solution. And and nine times out of ten, we think that solution is me. How am I going to fix this? What am I going to do about it? And the challenge here is in every situation that, that threatens your anxiety, instead of looking horizontal, go vertical. Take it to the Lord. Don't don't look at the worldly problems from a worldly perspective. Looking for worldly solutions, look to the Lord. As I said, anxiety is sin, and the solution then is repentance and faith. Rejoice in the Lord, that's faith. Believing who God is, turn from anxiety to prayer, that's repentance. Turning from sin to Christ, turning from sin to obedience. Letting go of my self-focused, self-sufficient drive, trying to to bear this burden on my own, toiling and, and fretting over how am I going to fix this, and instead taking that to the Lord. The problem is not the feeling of fear. The problem is what do I do with it? Where do I take it? There are so many horizontal strategies that we have for anxiety. We go to workaholism. Sometimes that that I'm just going to muscle my way through to a solution here, or or sometimes just as a distraction, something to do. We turn to alcohol, drugs, porn, to to television, and even novels, just just as a way of numbing ourselves, just to, to distract. Maybe you become manipulative short-tempered with those around you. Even if they aren't the problem, you just want to assert your control over something in your life. 
Um, my wife is quite appreciative of some of my uh, tendencies with anxiety, certainly not all of them, um, but one of the things that I will do, if there's a problem in my life that's overwhelming, I'll clean the house, top to bottom, until it's spotless, uh, because I want to have control. I want to have something in my life that I, can, uh, that I can have dominion over, and my mom's laughing right now because she, she's married to the same thing. But here's the problem. It doesn't help. It doesn't get there. First off, many of our coping mechanisms are in and of themselves sinful. But even the best ones fail to get to the root of the problem. Here's why. Because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Right? It's it's not about what I do to cope. It's It's about what's happening inside. There are all kinds of worldly strategies to manage anxiety. And and you can go to a counselor and they will give you helpful thought exercises that you can walk through. They will teach you how how to calm yourself, how to find your happy place. There's good breathing techniques and mindfulness exercises and and, and all kinds of things. And, And those aren't bad in and of themselves. You might have great success in, in managing your anxiety, but, but we don't manage sin. We repent of it. And you won't get that unless you go to a, a good biblical counselor who's willing to say, this is sin, and you need to get to the root of it. Even cleaning the house, as, as benign as that is morally and as great as that is for my wife, um, it can still be sinful right? As it just kind of paints this thin veneer over top of my anxiety, it hides the reality of my sinful, struggling heart. It's totally unhelpful to me. As I ease the burden of my anxiety, it it keeps me from addressing it. It hides the root of the problem. It keeps me from learning to take those concerns to the Lord as I should. Cleaning the house is my way of making myself feel better while I continue on in self-reliance, which is, at its root, putting myself in the place of God. That's not a small thing. That's a big deal. We don't manage sin. We repent of it. We replace it with obedience. Don't be anxious about anything. Reject anxiety. Put off the old self and put on obedience. Put on prayer. And not just any prayer. Look at verse 6 again. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. That, that, that's not coincidental. I think we've all had those prayer times where we aren't really praying so much as we're scolding God. We're just taking taking to God our anxiety and just telling him how bad things are and how anxious we are, continuing to focus on ourselves or or coming to God with a list of demands. God, you fix this now. The only thing I desire from the Lord is his solution. And I demand it. I, I, I seek to make God my servant. But prayer with thanksgiving, that's, that's humble prayer. It's a prayer that comes to the Lord recognizing that as a sinner, the only thing I deserve from the Lord is wrath and judgment. That's my right before God. And the fact that I still am alive today to have this problem is nothing but grace. More than that, Not only has he let this miserable traitor continue to draw his breath, but he sent his son to die in my place, to take the wrath that I deserve, that I might be forgiven. He has solved my eternal problem. He has solved by far and away what is my greatest problem. 
And as I turn my eyes to Christ, rejoicing in the Lord, remembering that on the cross, Jesus took every ounce of God's wrath that I deserved, I can be confident by faith in Christ that that he's for me. That God has for me not one shred of ill will. Not the slightest hint of God's wrath and judgment is left toward me. He is 100% for me. For my good. And though as a good father he does discipline his children and, and for the moment no discipline is pleasant but rather painful, we know that later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who've been trained by it. And, and so we know by faith that even the worst things in our lives, and I know some of you are facing terrible things, but even the worst things in our lives are God's loving tool for our ultimate good. And though we can't for the life of us understand how, they will certainly be used eternally for our greatest joy. And so we pray, not without weeping, not without confusion and and pleading with the Lord, not without desperate supplication, but also not without thanksgiving. Not without a deep conviction that though I deserve not one good thing, I am confident that He will give and is giving me every good thing. Accordance with Romans 8.28, Even in the midst of the greatest evils of this world, he is working all things to the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. And so 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says, Humble yourself, humble yourself before the Lord under the almighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you believe that? He cares for you. Refocus with praise and and then replace anxiety with prayer. Go to your knees. Go to your loving Heavenly Father. Go to Him with faith in His goodness and with thanksgiving. And then verse 7. We refocus in praise and we replace it with prayer and then we rest in peace. Paul writes, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a fantastic promise. The peace of God. Not my peace that is so fragile and easily destroyed. Not man's peace that never lasts, but God's peace. To be sure, this is more than just a feeling of peace. There is a a practical, uh, tangible peace here. Ephesians 2, 13 and 18 kind of lays out this peace that we have um, in Christ. We have peace with God and, and peace with one another. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is speaking specifically of Jews and Gentiles, um, but it's certainly not limited to that and how God reconciles us together. We talked last week about how coming to Christ in faith is is giving up on my pride. It's laying everything down, coming empty-handed to Him. And so in Christ, we're brought to level footing with every other person. We're united together as sinners without one plea 
forgiven by grace, adopted as brothers and sisters into the family of God. And so in Christ, we have a very real peace with one another in the church, with those who are in Christ. Then, united in Christ, we also have peace with God. Not only is he... Has he broken down this dividing wall of hostility between us and made us into one man, one new humanity? He has then reconciled us to God. He's made peace between us and God. Our sin is is an act of war against God, right? Sin in general, and specifically our anxiety, it is attacking the character and goodness of God. Saying, I don't trust you. And that's not a war you want to be in. You pick a fight with God, you lose every time. But in Christ, those who come to him, trusting in him, trusting in in his death on their behalf, have peace with God. Our sin, our attacks against God, the the arrows that we have shot and the stones that we have hurled against the fortress of God's character are forgiven or wiped away. And so in Christ, we have peace with God. We have peace with those who are in Christ and we have peace with God himself. The peace of God is a practical, tangible peace but it's also the experience of inner peace. John 14, 27, Jesus speaks of this. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Now listen, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so notice this peace that Jesus is offering here. It's the remedy. Not for division between you and a brother, but but for a troubled heart. Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is our peace. John 16.33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's speaking of the inevitable trials and tribulations and struggles and suffering we will have in this world. It is the case. It will be because this world is tainted and broken by sin and God will fix that in the end. But right now we live in this messed up, broken meantime. But in spite of that, he says, take heart. Let your heart be settled, be calmed, peaceful in Jesus By faith in him, rejoicing in him, we have peace with God, peace with one another, and peace within ourselves. A lack of anxiety, an overcoming of fear. And then he says that we are to rest in this peace which surpasses all understanding. I want to Just be careful here because I think sometimes this phrase is used to mean something other than what Paul meant by it. The peace of God certainly is beyond our understanding, but that doesn't make it uh, illogical, right? The peace of God is unique. It surpasses anything we can attain. It, It surpasses all of our all of our ideas and and strategies and schemes of our own wisdom. It's not a peace that that we can get to on our own. It is by faith. But that doesn't mean it's illogical. It doesn't mean that it's it's this kind of mystical feeling that we just sit back and and wonder, oh, where did that come from? I have this strange peace. It's, It's outside. I don't understand it. It's not... It's not this thing that we either have or we don't have and and we just kind of wait for it helplessly. Contrary to how it's often spoken of, um, faith is not the opposite of reason. Get that out of your head. That's worldly faith. Faith is not the opposite of reason. Faith goes beyond reason, but it's not the opposite. Uh, You use faith every day. You're using it right now, believing that the couch you're sitting on will hold you up. 
You have faith every time you back out of the driveway, trusting that when you push on that brake pedal, your car's going to stop. You didn't rigorously examine it. You didn't do scientific testing to be sure that it's going to work. You have reason. You, you, you know about chairs in general, and you, you've ascertained some things about this chair before you sat down, but, but then you just sat. You put your faith in it. Faith in Christ, the kind of faith that brings peace, is the same. It surpasses understanding. It, it goes beyond what simple reason will give you, but, but that doesn't mean it's unreasonable. It's not the peace of a crazy person. Right? Like we can imagine a man having peace, grinning ear to ear as he walks through the middle of a war zone with bullets whizzing past his head. He's insane, but he's at peace. But, but that's not what we're talking about. That's not a healthy peace. That's not what we're going for here. Or maybe a child who has peace as he walks completely unknowingly, dancing his way through a minefield. He could blow up at any moment, but he's at peace. Well, that's, that's peace out of ignorance. That's folly. That's not faith. That's stupidity. The faith that we're looking for is reasonable. Paul gets to his peace by faith, which is trusting in what he knows to be true, even though he doesn't see it. Romans 8 is a marvelous place to go. If you're wrestling with fear and anxiety, I just encourage you this afternoon, sit down with Romans 8. Um, Verse 18, specifically, Paul um, says this is how he has peace through suffering. Not by ignoring it, not by pretending that that it's just not there, but rather he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy of comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He considers it. He thinks about it. He wrestles through it. He's reasoned his way through. And his reason leads him to the next step, which is faith. From what I know about God, for sure. From what I know about his goodness and his sovereignty and his good plan for his children, I I have peace through suffering because I know that it's preparing for me a glory, a joy that far outweighs these trials, that God is working in and through these things for my good, and I am going to have faith in that. I'm going to rest in what I know to be true. He did the same thing earlier in Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 8. He said, I I count everything as loss. I count. He weighed out. He, He thought about. He measured all things as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rejoicing in Christ. He's measured out and carefully decided that gaining Christ is worth everything. And so in Christ he has peace. He trusts by faith in what he doesn't see, but it's rooted firmly in what he knows to be true. And and that faith, that carefully thought out, deliberate decision to believe God, he says then, look, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word there, guard, it's another military term. Of course, Philippi, again, being this this Roman uh, military outpost. They're familiar with seeing guards around the city. The city is well guarded by these Roman soldiers. Paul himself, as he's writing this from prison, is guarded by a Roman soldier. And he's saying the peace of God, the peace of God given uh, by him as a gift to those who have faith, to those who trust in him, will be like a soldier guarding your heart and your mind, keeping you in Christ. Believer, you ought to have peace. You should not be consumed by anxiety. Absolutely, it will attack. Absolutely, there will be a battle over your heart. 
Those fierce wolves of fear and anxiety will remain hot on your heels and they will strike without warning. But you must deliberately fight. Refocus your heart in praise. Replace that that self-sufficient, self-centered anxiety with prayer and then by faith, resting in peace. And let that faith as a soldier guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And the more you do it, the more you learn to to have faith, the more you lean on that faith and rest in peace, the easier it becomes. Do you know why you didn't examine your chair this morning before you sat down for breakfast? Do you know why you, you just back out of the driveway not wondering whether or not your brakes will fail? Because you've done it a thousand times before. And so quite automatically, almost casually, you just trust them without a thought. Lean on Christ. Trust Him. Look to His goodness and His grace and rest in it through trials, through fear, through unknown. Put Him to the test. And the more you trust Him, the more you rest in Him, the more you let His goodness and His character be tested by your faith in Him, the more natural it becomes. The easier it gets time and time again, and the next time a trial comes, you'll think back and remember, I rested in Christ before, and He has brought me through, and He'll bring me through again. He is trustworthy. I know Him. So, Run yourself through this process. As trials come, as you feel that that monster of anxiety begin to to maraud your peace once again, just, just run through this. Stop. I need to refocus in praise. Worship the Lord. Remind myself of who He is. I need to replace my anxiety with prayer and get on my knees humbly with thanksgiving. And I need to rest in that peace. Let me pray for you. Father.